0: CNN just said that they evacuated all members of Congress into a safety room. There's no safe place in the United States for any of these motherfuckers right now, let me tell you. I hope they understand that we are not joking around.
1: Ballot. It's
0: Military a Principle 105. Military Principle 105 cave means grave. Trump just tweeted. Please support our Capitol Police. They are on our side. Do not harm them.
2: That's saying a lot by what he didn't say. He didn't say not to do anything to the congressman.
0: (laughs) That was only one of the many chilling images and voices the January 6th committee displayed to the world Thursday night. Audio tapes of some of the rioters talking among themselves about hunting down and possibly even killing members of Congress. The rioters wreaked havoc on the U.S. Capitol, smashing windows, detonating smoke bombs, assaulting police officers, while President Trump sat watching Fox News in the White House dining room, indifferent and unmoved, rejecting repeated pleas from his top White House aides, the Republican leader of the House, his friends at Fox News, and even members of his own family to speak out and call off the mob. We learned for the first time that members of Vice President Mike Pence's own security detail feared for their lives and were frantically calling home to loved ones during the attack. And we heard for the first time from another incredibly strong young woman, White House press aide Sarah Matthews, describing how she was so repulsed by Trump's profound dereliction of duty that she drafted and submitted her resignation that very day. How powerful was the committee's summertime finale? And perhaps more importantly, how will it be assessed at the Department of Justice? We'll talk to Mary McCord, the Justice Department's former top national security official, on this episode of Skullduggery. I do solemnly swear that I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States. I will, to the best of my ability, preserve, protect, and defend Constitution of the United States. So help me God. So
3: help me God. So help me God. So help me God. So help me
0: God. God. I'm Michael Isgoff, Chief Investigative
3: Correspondent for Yahoo News. I'm Dan Clydman, Editor in Chief of Yahoo News.
1: And I'm Victoria Bassetti, Senior Counsel at States United. So once again, a lot of
0: really gripping testimony from the January 6th committee hearing. There was a lot to digest there, you know, particularly, I mean, among the many things that leapt out was these Secret Service agents on Mike Pence's detail fearing for their lives that day, frantically calling home to loved ones about what was happening while the president sits idly watching Fox News doing nothing. But I have to say there was great speechifying, but what really leapt out to me most, I think, was Sarah Matthews. You know, once again, a young woman who we'd never heard of before, speaking out in forceful ways and making a stand that very day when senior people, you know, were not there, were not doing it. She submits her resignation when she watches, appalled at the president's inaction. I think you put that together with Cassidy Hutchinson, and we really have a theme here of young women who, you know, showed metal when their superiors did not.
3: Yeah, I was thinking the same thing. And adding to that theme is, of course, the role of Liz Cheney, who has taken these young women under her wing and encouraged them and and protected them. And of course, Liz Cheney is a stirring example of a woman who has taken on uh, her own party for the principle of country over party and uh, standing up for constitutionalism.
0: Not so young, though. uh, Okay, all right, you got to point that uh, out, uh, Mike. I'm I'm sure Liz Cheney (laughs) will be really pleased.
3: (laughs) She she doesn't like us anyway.
0: I know, but look, it's just striking to me to have, you know, these women you know, showing strength of character and fortitude contrasting with the folks like Mark Meadows sitting there scrolling through his iPhone throughout the whole thing. Victoria, do you, you want
3: to defend older women, uh, Victoria? <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm just
0: merely pointing out that Liz Cheney doesn't fit in quite the same category. More a mentor to these women perhaps, but not, you know, in this in the same the same. Mike category. age is
1: age is just a number. It's just a number. Um <laughs> I right. think okay. I think most people were also watching this hearing trying to figure out how and whether it moves ahead the case against Donald Trump from a criminal perspective or from the Department of Justice potentially indicting him or from other kind of accountability being rained down on Donald Trump's head. And I was struck not by what the committee was saying, which was he did nothing. He was silent. He made an active decision not to stop the insurrection. I was struck by what he affirmatively did do that day. And that is knowing that there was a riot, that there was violent activity going on in Congress, rather than trying to stop it, he actually affirmatively kept trying to push his plan ahead. In other words, he took advantage of it. He continued to call senators and ask them to delay the certification. It's, to me, the most damning evidence of what's going on. He affirmatively attempted to use the most tragic and violent assault on the U.S. Capitol since the War of 1812 for one purpose only, and that was to further his illegitimate effort to stay in office.
0: Well, we're obviously going to be discussing this with our guest, Mary McCord, who is as qualified as anybody to evaluate how this fits into a potential criminal prosecution. But I'm just, I'm curious, how do you see it, Victoria? How does... Trump continuing to call senators, although we didn't really see a lot of evidence of that. They asserted that. We know that Rudy Giuliani called uh, Tupperville by mistake, you know, but regardless, let's assume that what the committee asserted is true and they can back it up. How does that factor in, in your mind, to a potential criminal prosecution here?
1: Well, I think what it indicates is that the conspiracy or that the criminal activity continued well past the moment when the Capitol was breached. A lot of what Trump and his allies attempt to say is, you know, he was surprised by this. This wasn't what he actually intended to have happen. And once it happened, he was stunned into silence or didn't you know, exactly know what to do. But I think the evidence indicates that rather than just sitting in the dining room watching TV for two hours, he did more than that he continued to call his co-conspirators to figure out how to continue and keep pushing his effort.
3: That is true. And and I think that marginally probably does help the criminal case if there is one. Uh, but I think in terms of the just his sort of dereliction of duty and the kind of moral component of his uh, or immoral component of his conduct, the things that he didn't do were also pretty, pretty striking. And, you know, just to go back to the theme of young women being so impressive throughout these hearings, there was one older man who I thought was pretty striking yesterday, and that was General Mark Milley, the top officer of our armed forces. Now, he didn't testify live, but in his taped interview, I think no one said said it more simply and devastating that his kind of dereliction of duty and just kind of casting aside the most fund- fundamental you know, and basic constitutional responsibilities of a president to protect our democracy and the American people was when Mark Milley said, you're the commander in chief, you've got an assault going on on the capital of the United States of America and there's nothing, no call, nothing, zero. He never called law enforcement. He never called the military. When the Pentagon wanted reached out to him to coordinate a response, he wouldn't take the call. Pat Cipollone had to take the call. Imagine
0: if it was a terrorist attack on the U.S. Capitol or an Antifa attack on the U.S. Capitol, what the response would have been from the White House and from the entire national security apparatus, which seems to have been almost paralyzed the entire day. I thought the exchanges towards the end, the, the text exchanges among the two uh, you know, Trump aides they showed at the end, uh, I think one of them was this guy, Tim Murtaugh, who says, of course he wasn't gonna condemn what was going on Trump was not gonna do that because these were his people and it's as simple as that he wasn't going to To I mean, in in a way, we always talk about how Trump, you know, summoned the mob, to use the phrase that Liz Cheney has used, you know, repeatedly here, that as though he was controlling the mob that day, there's at least as much of an element of the mob controlling him because he would not cross. Yeah,
3: but also, in a sense, he didn't just summon the mob, you know, in the days before January 6th, he summoned the mob in 2015 when he started running for president. With his yeah. with his rhetoric and with his demagoguery and tapping into and exploiting for his own selfish political purposes the anger that was uh, was out there the one thing other thing that I was thinking Thursday night as I was watching uh, these hearings you know they showed clips of McConnell and other Republicans who had um, said you know very strong words about uh, Donald Trump on the evening of January 6th. And after that, Kevin McCarthy as well. But when you're talking about kind of relinquishing your constitutional duties, I kept thinking about impeachment. I kept thinking about, given everything that we've seen, and by the way, a lot of this we knew in the days after January 6th, and by the time those impeachment proceedings began, how is it that they all voted against, so many of them voted against impeachment, so few voted for to convict in the well, Senate.
0: fifty-seven vo- Fifty-seven voted to convict, which is a majority, not quite right. The but super I'm talking about
3: needed. But, but McConnell didn't. Uh,
0: McConnell didn't. Right. But would it be worth trying it again? I I don't know. It
3: wouldn't. But when you and we're going to have this conversation with Mary McCord, when you think about all of the challenges that the Justice Department is likely to have in prosecuting the president you kind of look back. I think maybe some people will look back wistfully and wonder, was that the real opportunity to hold Donald Trump accountable and perhaps even the better way to do it? And it's too late for that now.
1: Well, one of the things yeah, that they, yeah. that I I feel like they're they're circling, but they haven't quite landed on yet, is the penalty clause in the Fourteenth Amendment, which people may know uh, was drafted in the wake of the Civil War and essentially held that anyone who had uh, kind of aided and comforted or who had engaged in a rebellion against the United States could could not hold political office in the United States. We know that that provision has been uh, t- has been deployed or attempted to be used against Madison Cawthorn, against Marjorie Taylor Greene. To me, there hints in some of their wording in the committee that they think that this is what ought to be used against him. But it's unprecedented and novel and, and almost uh, impossible to imagine how it could be used. But It is the great tool that's still available to keep him from office in the future.
0: Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I mean, the Fourteenth Amendment was written in the aftermath of the Civil War and when they talk about a rebellion, they were talking about the Confederacy. I'm just not sure you could apply the word rebellion to the mob that was ramsacking the Capitol that day. It was it was a mob, it was a riot, it was horrific. But, you know, would it would it pass constitutional muster under the Fourteenth Amendment? I don't know. And I just want to make one final point before we get to our great guest. Mary McCord, as riveting as the testimony has been, as disgraceful as Trump's conduct obviously was and is being shown to be, I do have to, you know, register my uh, standard purist mild dissent, maybe not so mild, about the way the committee is handling these. Um, we still have not seen any of the depositions that they've shown clips of, so we can't see the full context. There's no cross examination of any of the witnesses to explore potential holes in what they are saying. And, you know, uh, they are not calling witnesses that might contradict the narrative that they are presenting. We had that sensational testimony from Cassidy Hutchinson a few weeks ago about Trump being so irate inside the uh, the car when he wanted to go to the Capitol that he grabbed the steering wheel and lunged for the clavicle of one of the Secret Service agents. It was widely reported yesterday yesterday that uh, in the uh, after the hearing that the Hutchinson's testimony had been corroborated or key elements had been corroborated. That's not what I heard. I, what I heard is, you know, a testimony that Trump was irate about not being allowed to go to the Capitol, something that really wasn't in dispute that had been reported in books, but no confirmation of the secondhand sensational testimony that Hutchinson offered. Doesn't mean it's not true. But we haven't heard from those Secret Service witnesses who supposedly were prepared to testify. Why Um, haven't we we heard from them? Text messages either. I I don't understand. uh, Because supposedly they were going to contradict Hutchinson's account. And that's not what the committee wants to put on.
1: No, no, Mike, 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 this is, this is, this is just like a credulous embrace of anonymous sources who are unwilling to come forward and put their, well, call actual- the witnesses, call the witnesses. Well, are you, you why don't you call the them up, you call them know. up, why don't you call well, them and, I, and interview uh, them? Uh, uh, yeah, I, I'm
0: sorry. I, look, it, it is very simple. These people did already testify. They didn't testify to what Cassidy Hutchinson had asserted took place inside that uh, car, and they could be called back look, easily. I, I think and, it is a legitimate
3: you know, question: Why have they not been called by the committee to testify on the record under oath? I don't know that the maybe those negotiations are taking place. Maybe they have been asked. Maybe the committee expects to bring them, you know, before the committee in September. I I don't know, but I do think that's a fair question.
0: Okay well on that I'll take that uh, for now since <laughs> I'm sure getting, many of our Isikoff. listeners yeah I know and I'm sure many of our listeners will not agree for 1 second but you know so be <laughs> it okay Victoria's got a plane to catch so she won't be with us for the rest of this episode but we've got the perfect guest to explore all these issues Mary McCord was the top national security official in the Justice Department towards the end of Barack Obama's presidency and before that she spent nearly 20 years in the US Attorney's office in Washington the very office conducting the January 6th investigations. So let's get to it. Okay, we now have with us Mary McCord, former assistant attorney general for national security. And uh, previously, uh, she was for nearly 20 years an assistant U.S. attorney in the U.S. attorney's office in the District of Columbia, the very office that is conducting all the uh, January 6th investigations. Mary, welcome back to Skullduggery. Thanks for having me. So you watched the hearings uh, last night and uh, all the riveting testimony that was presented. Give us your take what leapt out to you about what the committee presented.
2: So I think there were several things that that jumped out to me. I mean, first, it was very dramatic to actually see the sort of almost minute by minute timeline of what Trump was doing or not doing during the 187 minutes between his rally speech at the Ellipse and the and his finally essentially calling off the mob uh, after 4 p.m., after so much damage and violence had already taken place at the Capitol. You know, we all knew from other news stories that that he hadn't called for any assistance from law enforcement, the military, National Guard, Homeland Security, anybody. But sort of seeing it painted, I think, really painted out in that level of detail yesterday, showing visually through, I guess, a digital reproduction of the White House and the dining room, including the television playing Fox News while he sat there and watched it. We really, I think, could see that his strategy all along was delay, 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 delay because only by delaying any response, or any telling people to go home, could he be successful in disrupting the count of the electoral ballots and potentially achieving his goal of either sending various electoral slates back to the states or getting Pence to to count the votes of the fraudulent electors from some of the swing states that had sent in uh, fraudulent slates of electors. So I think that the overall upshot was that this delay was very purposeful we could see minute by minute what he was consuming. So he wasn't surprised by the rally. He wasn't unaware that people were calling to hang Mike Pence. He wasn't unaware that law enforcement was being violently attacked. And yet he still delayed and delayed. Uh, I think until he figured, Oh my gosh, it looks like law enforcement is finally coming in and shutting things down. And my delay is not going to work. I think once he's figured out he failed, that's when he jumped in with his, very, very inadequate milk toast uh, request for folks to go home. So, M- Mary, we're going to get into
3: all of the potential legal issues involving bringing charges against Trump if the Justice Department decides to, to do that, and how they make that decision, given given the challenges. But just as a legal matter, everything that you were just talking about—the inaction, the failure to do things, as opposed to yeah, you know, doing things affirmatively—what's the legal significance of that? part of the story? I mean, how can that be used or not used in a criminal prosecution?
2: So I think it's what, you know, alone, it wouldn't establish, it wouldn't establish a criminal offense. But I think it's just one piece of the entire sequence of events, right? From honestly, going all the way back to early 2020 when he started seeding the narrative of a a rigged election. But we really start seeing it post-election. And I think the last hearing where we learned about that December 18th meeting, when all of his closest White House advisors basically went to the mat in a heated meeting and saying, we are not going to support you doing any of these you know, schemes that Sidney Powell and Mike Flynn and, you know, Rudy Giuliani are trying to convince you to do in, in terms of the pressure campaign on the states, the pressure campaign on the on the vice president and on the Department of Justice. Seizing actually. voting machines. Exactly. All of that. They, they went to the man and said, we're not going to do that. It's over. And, it, you know, it seems like in that moment at one whatever time, 1 a.m. in the morning, 142 is when he decided, okay, I'm gonna have to call on the mob. So I think that between then, his tweeting about be there, be wild, his knowing, I think, you know, and I think this still is more evidence to show here, how aware was he of what. the plans were were taking place throughout the country by extremist groups militia groups and others between that tweet and January 6 how aware was he of how what he was saying was provoking people to make these plans and how much was his his intent and of course we come to his speech on the on the ellipse where he's calling on people to march on the Capitol. He's calling on people to fight like hell. He's calling on Mike Pence. And, you know, so I think you put that, all of that in combination with him sitting there, delaying doing anything. And, and, you know, one of the, I thought really powerful moments last night was when Sarah Matthews testified that she had been with him all over the country at his rallies. She had seen, and she knew that he knew how his words affect people. And this is something that, I and others have been saying for years, like he has to know he's got the biggest microphone around or he did. And and so she thought it was so incredibly dangerous for him to tweet the things he did, particularly the the comments about, I think, Mike Pence, right in the midst of this assault on the on the Capitol. and, And he had to know what impact that would have. He knew, right.
3: He knew that his words were weapons or could be weapons. Exactly.
2: I want to drill
0: down a bit on how your former colleagues at the Justice Department are processing all this. I mean, it seems like the relevant statute, and please correct me if you think I'm wrong, is the one relating to obstruction of an official proceeding. And the official proceeding is the certification of the election. And Trump was plotting to obstruct that. But when you take into account that it was not unprecedented for members of Congress to object to the certification of an election, 31 Democrats objected to the certification of George W. Bush's election on January 6th, 2005, raising all sorts of bogus conspiracy claims about what happened in Ohio and vote flipping and all that, nobody asserts that in and of itself was a crime. So if it's not a crime to object to the certification of an election, how do you take all this powerful evidence and make a criminal case related to what has been, and by the way, it wasn't just 2004, Democrats also objected after the you know Trump's election itself in 2016, and there were a few Democrats who objected after Bush's original election in 2000. How do you distinguish what was done in the past, unsuccessfully, with no real prospect of, of altering the results of an election, with what's happened here?
2: Yeah, right. Well, I do. I think that's one criminal statute at issue. I do think there are others as well. But and and you make a very good point that simply, you know, registering objections that are unfounded is something that's happened in the past. And we've certainly never seen a prosecution under um, Section 1512 for that. And I wouldn't expect that here. I think that what Trump did was bigger than just urge people to object during, you know, the actual counting of the Electoral College votes. Certainly that was a part of it. But you have to go. I think you really have to dig into the entire entire fraudulent elector scheme, which will also depend on what he knew about it. And you know, one thing that the committee has elicited over the last several hearings is the fact that he was told by pretty much everyone in his you know official circles, his official advisors, his White House counsel that no, it is not okay to send up competing slates of electors from states where the vote was certified to go to the Biden electors. It is not legal, it's not lawful to have those states send up slates of electors for you when you didn't win and you've lost all of your lawsuits there. The only people telling him that he should keep doing this were John Eastman and Rudy Giuliani. And you know that what I think they've called the clown crew or the clown, clown show in some of these yeah. hearings and and so, you know, I think that's a pretty thin read for him to hang on to that. Well, I had somebody telling me that it was OK. And and mind you as well. Now, this was hearsay. This wouldn't be admissible in a criminal trial, but they, they may ultimately get to the bottom of this and get a testimony that would be admissible. I believe it was Ms. Hutchinson who said that. You know, she had heard that John Eastman. I th- and that could be wrong. That it was Cassie Hutchinson at this point. That John Eastman even himself had admitted to Trump that you know, no, it wasn't. It wasn't really lawful. It wasn't really grounded. But they. I should
0: think be that in. was Greg Jacobs, who was okay. uh, Pence's counsel, who had that exchange with Eastman, in which Eastman was saying, "Well, they've already violated the Electoral College Act, and right. you know, so why can't we just violate it some more?" Right. You know, was, right.
2: And, I, was and, and you know, So anyway, I think you need to take put that piece of it and the pressure on Diaz DS- Jay, you know, the efforts to potentially install an acting assistant to fire the attorney general and install his own puppet who was willing to to say that the election was there was a basis for investigating fraud and for, you know, sending things back to the states, his pressure on Pence to just use authority that Pence didn't have to uh, either send things back to the states or count those fraudulent votes. And, you know, his pressure campaign on the state legislatures themselves. In fact, just a week ago, he was calling people in Wisconsin, asking them to (laughs) decertify. Right. It hasn't stopped, which is, I think, another important point that came out last night. Like this didn't end on January 6th. I mean, it is in full swing now. And I wasn't surprised to hear that he couldn't say in his taped message the election is over because he still hasn't said the election is over.
3: So, Mary, I don't think I've heard from a a single, you know, really experienced prosecutor that a Justice Department prosecution of Donald Trump uh, would be easy. I mean, I think everyone recognizes that there are challenges with all of these potential offenses, whether it's seditious conspiracy, conspiracy to to defraud the United States or obstructing a, a congressional proceeding. As a veteran prosecutor yourself, as you listen to these hearings, as you, as you read about the Justice Department uh, considering bringing charges, what evidence would you want so that you could go into the, the grand jury and say, you know, uh, here's what we've got and get an indictment and then feel, feel confident you could bring it before a jury and win with the reasonable doubt standard and then win on appeal as
2: well? So I I agree that it would be hard, uh, not purely as a matter of evidence, but just purely, but also because, you know, it's really unprecedented and it would be called a political stunt from the beginning. I mean, Merrick Garland's in a duff, he's kind of in a Damned if you do, damned if you don't, right? He's going to take the heat. If he doesn't bring charges, he's going to take the heat if he does. And so he's a very careful person. His deputy, Lisa Monaco, is extremely careful, cautious, close to the best person I know her well. But these are good, experienced prosecutors. And of course, they, you know, they themselves, I wouldn't expect, would be trying a case. But you can be darn sure that the investigation that is ongoing is being regularly reported up the chain to both Lisa Monaco and uh, Merrick Carl. So, one thing about the, the presentations of the committee is they're not bound by the rules of evidence, right? So, we have heard hearsay from various witnesses, including Sarah Matthews, including Cassie Hutchinson, of things that they heard someone else say about what Donald Trump said. And, and it's
3: not uh, an adversarial process. So, we're not seeing right. witnesses' yeah, be uh, testimony being, you know, cross examined. Right? Right. Although,
2: yeah. I, I did think that. Liz Cheney made a very good point last night that if you think that Bill Barr is such a delicate flower <laughs> that he would wither under cross-examination, you know- Well, not to-
3: Bill Barr, but maybe, may, you know, maybe some <laughs> maybe of the Cassidy other witnesses, Hus- maybe right, Cassidy right. Hutchison, yeah. yeah.
2: So anyway, I just want to make that point that, you know, I think that there's a very persuasive case being painted by the committee, but that doesn't mean everything that they're listening would be admissible in a trial. And so there's work to be done. And to get really to your question, Dan, you would need those witnesses who had the percipient knowledge, who were in the direct conversation with the president or witness those conversations themselves firsthand to know exactly what he knew and when. And, you know, I do think uh, you know, at various times, right? I mean, in January of 2020, I wrote a piece for the Atlantic called Investigate Him, which was just saying there is enough here to launch an investigation. And here are all the things that investigators want to be looking for, right? They want to be looking for phone records, they want to be looking for any context between. Trump's inner circle and, you know, the organizers of the riot and some of that is starting to come out. They want to you they, you want to know what media was he consuming throughout this time period we've been discussing. And so did he know, and we already talked about this a little bit, to what extent did he know how his words were impacting the planning and still go ahead and throw more gasoline on the fire, according to the terminology we heard last night? So these are all things that you would want to get really solid on before bringing any type of charges. And there are still gaps there. There are still things. I've got one
3: quick, just one quick follow up, because at the end of the day, for all of these charges would you'd have to prove corrupt intent right yeah so i mean some people have talked about well you know one one piece of ev- important piece of evidence would be that he acknowledged at some point i know i didn't win the election right that that would help but what about subpoenaing trump wouldn't investigators want to talk to him and is that something that you could you foresee that happening
2: um Not really, because you mean criminal investigation in a criminal investigation, because, you know, to do that, obviously he would be the target of the investigation or at least a subject, which means uh, his attorneys would say, don't talk to the government unless they're trying to work out some deal. And I don't see the former president being somebody who wants to really work out a deal. If it if the art of the deal, what do you mean? Well, (laughs) if it requires any admission of culpability on his part. Uh, So I think, you know, you know, it's. It's almost like we're in a Shakespearean tragedy, uh, you know, a Macbeth situation where this person's mind, I feel like, has been, you know, psychologically, he's paranoid, he's megalomaniac, he's, you know, he he can't fathom that he's not in power. And so that's a difficult person to negotiate with. So what I think, you know, and, you know, I, I hear reporters call me and they think they think nothing's going on because no one is leaking that they've been, con- nobody high level in Trump circles is leaking that they've been contacted by prosecutors, etc. And, you know, I can't tell you what's happening. All I can say is that, you know, I take Merrick Garland at his word when he says we're going to follow the facts and, uh, you know, where they lead at any level. I know how these things proceed. And you're not going to, the first thing you do is not going to be call up Mark Meadows and say, hey, we're going to put you in the grand jury. You're going to be getting, because you want, when you eventually do go seek an interview with the people who were in Trump's inner circle, you want to have such a, you know, dossier of of evidence of things, you know, of whatever phone records you have, whatever communications, text messages, et cetera, that you've been able to acquire through legal process or uh, or through the committee. You want to have all of this so that you pretty much know what the person needs to say to be telling the truth and when and frankly that you can build a false statement case if if the person doesn't tell the truth so i think it would be very late stages before you'd be seeing the prosecution team talk to that inner circle and i know people are antsy i know people think it's been a long time but you know in major investigations they do take a really long time. And the department is not sitting around doing nothing. I mean, they've got over 800 rioters that they're prosecuting and they don't have unlimited resources. So I'm not trying to make excuses for them. I'm just not ready to say, oh, I don't think they're going to do anything. Now, whether they'll ever prosecute Trump, I don't know. I can't, You know that that to me is very much on the 50-50.
0: Mary, when did you write that uh, piece for The Atlantic under the headline, Investigate Him?
2: I think it was like January 20th of, of 2020 and of 2021, 2021. I mean, yes, 2021. 2021. Yeah. It was within within a couple of weeks of the insurrection because at the time, you know, I just thought, wow, it looks like there's certainly ample here to investigate, and partly that's because of my own work, even outside of government. You know, I'm working on anti-extremism and political violence and protecting democratic processes through litigation at Georgetown at the Institute for Constitutional Advocacy and Protection that I run. We are litigating. We're litigating against the fraudulent electors in Wisconsin right now, uh, and we did a lot of work in 2020 to help state, and local officials and law enforcement to to let them know what we were learning from researchers who were in the online space, the digital space, and seeing what was developing, so we you know we were aware before January sixth and conveying information to law enforcement about the intense planning going on amongst extremists and militia groups, white supremacist groups, et cetera.
0: yeah, I mean, my point in asking you when you wrote that is that was a year and a half ago, more than yeah. a year and a half ago, and your initial instinct was investigate him, the the, for, the then President of the United States. And I take your point that these things take time and that you want to develop as rich a body of evidence before you go to high-level people. But there is an argument that's been made. Uh, I think Andrew Weinstein made it recently uh, in an op-ed, former federal prosecutor, that the department was approaching this the wrong way. It was going from the bottom up and it should have gone much more rapidly to the top. At least getting people's records, subpoenaing phone records, subpoenaing text messages, subpoenaing everything. And it does not appear a year and a half into this that they've done that.
2: Yeah, I read Andrew's piece and I know, Andrew, well, Um, you know, I do think there's been both going on. I don't think it's just been bottom up. Uh, That's definitely the way things started out. And that's pretty typical. And, you know, they have definitely had cooperators from the rioters, but that's only going to take them so far. What we've seen since the beginning of this year and, and, you know, Lisa Monaco, the deputy attorney general, has said this publicly, is that they're, investigating the fraudulent elector scheme, and that has included subpoenas of people like Kenneth Chesbrough and others. And so, you know, and and I think so. So I would call that not the bottom up. I would call that definitely more of that wheel and spoke yeah. uh, type of conspiracy investigation that Andrew wrote about in his New York Times piece. I also would say, you know, we're not going to be aware of all of the different types of law enforcement processes used to get phone records and email communications, et cetera, because, you know, the government is able to go in and seek court orders for that and get gag orders. And so, you know, that stuff is not always transparent to the public for good reason because of fear of, of um, you know, evidence being destroyed.
0: Mary, on the on the fake electors scheme, you know, the defense is going to be we were just trying to preserve our legal options in case any of our legal challenges did make headway in the courts, we would have this alternative electors available for the Congress to certify. And some of them said that at the time. I mean, even in Georgia, where Fonnie Willis is aggressively investigating the fake elector scheme, David Schaefer, the chairman of the Georgia Republican Party, who's been gotten a target letter from Fonnie Willis, was giving interviews that day saying, oh, this is about preserving legal options. And in some of the fake elector uh, certifications, they actually included that, not in Georgia, but in some of the other I states. I will
3: point out, Isakoff, that I, I think they had already lost, like, I don't know how many, but maybe twenty lawsuits by then.
0: Yeah, no, I know. I know. look, it was all ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> you know, let's <laughs> stipulate that. But I'm just <laughs> saying, as a legal defense, Mary, how strong is that?
2: So, um, you know, you're right. Two of the states did put caveats on those certifications, but the other states did not. So they just met. On the day, you know, they had no authority, you know, in most states, for example, I can talk specifically about Wisconsin because we have litigation going on there, although I don't want to, you know, talk too much directly about our litigation, but the state laws in Wisconsin are very specific about uh, how the electoral, the electors are chosen, right? And, And you are only an official elector if your candidate wins the popular vote in your state as certified by the executive of the state. And in Wisconsin, as in the other states, it was not Donald Trump who won the popular vote. Therefore, those electors had no authority under state law to meet on the date that the electors meet to cast their ballots and certainly not to certify them as though in all respects, the certifications, you know, at least the one in Wisconsin looked like. A legitimate certification, and transmitted it to all of the authorities, including the president of the Senate, which is Vice President Pence, and the National Archivist, and others, as though they were the legitimate ballots. So, what's the criminal is,
3: offense? Is it fraud? Is it forgery? What is the?
2: So, there's a numerous, you know, depending on the state, there's state law offenses, um, conspiracy offenses, also federal offenses, some of which we've been talk- talking about. Uh, on the civil side, there's civil conspiracy there's you know in in some states there's a legal concept called quo warranto which is usurping a public office that you're not entitled to and that's why i made the point about what it is to be an elector means you know you are you are officially in this public office and you know they usurped that role by by taking on those things many of them then also used you know this was 2020 in the fall during COVID, when many state houses were shut down, and so for example in Wisconsin the state house was shut down, but they managed to, you know, get in there anyway using state and government resources to meet that day. So you know there's a variety of different things depending on the state, and certainly at the federal level, you know we have conspiracy to defraud the United States for one under 18 USC 371 and potentially also a 1512 and some of the other offenses. And I shouldn't use the numbers. I realize that's not
0: helpful um. <laughs> <laughs> that's okay but Mary you know what leaps out to me when you talk about this as if I'm hearing you correctly you think this is you know the central graviment of what where the justice department could go this is a massive conspiracy case because you've got scores of fake electors who participated in this so presumably they're all the targets in this you know i don't know whether we're talking 50 60 70 80 people and then you got all the people who were egging them on with you know including john eastman the uh you know law professor former supreme court clerk there are a lot of i mean that is strikes me as you know maybe justified but it's a pretty unwieldy criminal conspiracy case right
2: Well, I mean, you know, you can go as broad or as narrow as you want on a criminal conspiracy case. And I think each defendant would have to have the the requisite knowledge and intent, right, in order to be charged. And that may be different for some of the electors depending on what they knew or what they were told. To get back to your point is, wouldn't the defense be, oh, we were just doing this to be a backup. And that's why I think the the intent there would be important. But if we zoom up to this highest level, to the Eastman level, to the Trump level, to the Chesborough level, you know, that's where to the Sidney Powell and, and Rudy Giuliani. That's where some of this, where I think we're at least in the committee, seeing from from them, from the evidence that's being put on, that even they didn't actually think that this was lawful. I mean, there's you know some of the testimony was of Giuliani saying, look, just say the election was stolen and let the, you know, Republican senators and, other, and representatives take care of the rest of it, like, you know, an acknowledgement that this is just a BS scheme, but it's something to delay. It's something to allow us to put this off long enough that, frankly, we have a constitutional crisis. And so, you know, I don't know. These are not the smartest people in the world who are giving this advice to the president. I mean, just the you know, really? the, the, the real lawyers in the House. Don't were go out, him, out on a limb no. there. Yeah, maybe, exactly. Right? Um, but yeah. my point there being is I don't know that they really fully played out how all it might work. Right. They had a various theories. Right. We send things back to the states. Then we pressure the states to decertify and send in new slates. Or we get Pence to go ahead and just count the false slates. Or we tie it all up with delay so that that, you know, I don't know what happens, right? Like, I don't, the, the, you know, they've been, they've very seated their pants all along, I think. And, you know, a part of this, and, you know, we got into the fraudulent elector piece, but I, I, you know, I just keep, I tie it all together. I think that, you know, for Trump, you know, he wanted that to happen. And that was sort of the, I'm going to use air quotes here around, you know, the legal theory behind wanting to cause a delay on uh, January 6th in the the counting so that some of these things could play out. But getting the mob to go and cause that delay was also very much a part of it. Now, that I don't think has anything to do with the fraudulent electors in Wisconsin or Arizona or wherever, right? But that's what, uh, you know, when I'm talking about the way I think DOJ is approaching it, I think they're going bottom up. And I also think they're going top out. And the point is, you know, when will these things meet? So Mary, put yourself
3: in Merrick Garland's shoes for a minute here, and he he has to think beyond just you know he talks about the, the the facts and the law, but he has considerations in some sense that go beyond that, which is what lawyers I think talk call prudential considerations. So he has to decide whether a prosecution of a former president is in the national interest. He has to consider the precedent of either prosecuting or not prosecuting. He has to consider uh, what would the impact be if we prosecute and lose? How do you think about those uh, considerations?
2: Yeah, I, I, you, you nailed all of them, and there's even, and there are even more. Um, and I think here for me, because I've been struggling with this myself for some time, and I think what is pushing me toward thinking, assuming for a minute that the department obtains evidence that meets the standard for all criminal prosecutions, which is, you know, evidence that proves every element beyond a reasonable doubt. And we, you know, and there's confidence that they can prove that case, putting aside, you know, possible jury nullification, things like that, assuming they achieve you know, obtain the evidence that would support every element of criminal offenses. Uh, you know, I think accountability here is important because the president has has is still a threat to the country. So if if he had even after what he did on January 6th and the lead up to that, if he had then actually conceded and said the election's over, Joe Biden won, maybe I'll beat him next time. You know, that would be one thing. he has never done this this is a man i mean richard nixon like he made a lot of mistakes he's a criminal but he then you know he stopped being a criminal and well i don't actually i shouldn't say that because i guess i don't know that for sure but like he resigned (laughs) right He, he he gave up that that fight but trump it it's almost like he's doubled down you know he continues to say the election was stolen he continues to try to pressure people to decertify an election that took place almost two years ago. And so he is a continuing threat to our democracy. Well, and,
3: and I got to ask you, I mean, you raise a really interesting point, And that phrase continuing threat is fascinating because, of course, many people believe he is getting ready to announce uh, his reelection campaign. If, he's if kind Donald of said Trump, it, if, hasn't
0: he? <laughs> I mean, if, if he more said or less. Yeah, if Donald Trump were voting. to... Yeah. Uh,
3: you know, make a speech tomorrow and say, "You know what? I'm done with politics. I'm going home. I'm going to move. move just stay in Mar-a-Lago. I'm going to get off uh, social media, such as such as it is with truth, truth social, truth, truth social, truth social truth social." Uh, and uh, concedes that he lost the election. Now, all of these things are unfathomable. He, he, none of these things are going to happen. But would th- would those be legitimate factors for for prosecutors to consider when making a prosecution decision?
2: I think assuming point, it wasn't, assuming he didn't just say it and then go right back to what he's actually been doing, yeah, assuming yeah, that yeah. he really carried that out, I do think it's a consideration. Uh, you know, for all the reasons you indicated, right? Like one of the things important here is account is accountability, and if he were to take some accountability, it would change the equation. It wouldn't. It wouldn't necessarily convince me that it's it's unwarranted because. You know, I mean, this is a man who's gone about his life, lavished, you know, dinners at Mar-a-Lago, et cetera, et cetera, while the people he incited to attack the Capitol are paying the price like they trusted him. They believed him. They listened to him. You know, when you listen to Stephen Ayers testify. Last week, or whenever that was, one of the rioters who's been prosecuted, you know, he said, "I was addicted to social media. I believed him when he said the election was stolen. Now I've paid. Now I've looked into it. I realized there wasn't evidence for it. But you know, I did what I did. Now I've lost my job." I've you know lost the respect of friends and family. His life is pretty much ruined. Yet Trump has gone on with pretty, in fact, not you know with very little consequences. Probably the biggest consequence for him has been he lost his Twitter account, and it's been harder for him uh, to get the you know the same kind of traction. But you know the continuing threat also comes from how he is has impacted so many other politicians across the country in state races and in congressional races so you know we have election deniers people who are actively promoting the big lie uh, running for governors secretaries of state you know how terrifying is that we're talking about people who are actually in charge of elections in their states who might have the ability to, you know, put up a fraudulent state of a slate of electors. Uh, Attorneys general, we have people even at the precinct level, you know, getting involved in becoming election officials who are the ones responsible for certifying the ballots in their, you know, in their jurisdictions who buy into this election denial. And certainly, and then we have members of Congress openly using unlawful private militias as their security guards. Like, we're kind of in crazy town. And a lot of that is because of is because of Trump.
0: Mary, can I can I break in? I I, yeah. I fully accept that we are in crazy town. No question about that. But if I'm hearing you correctly, you're arguing that because Trump might well be running for president again, because he's still involved in the political process and riling up his peeps, that that strengthens the argument for criminally prosecuting him. And I just wonder, doesn't that kind of run up a bit against the idea that the Justice Department shouldn't be making decisions based on politics and how it might play, how something might play politically?
2: So I don't think so. And, you know, and we're talking about the prudential considerations here. Right. We're not talking about, you know, evidence in support of each element of a crime. and. If you even think about other types of crimes, when when I was a prosecutor and I was making a decision about what charges to bring, Guidelines do say charge the most significant offense for which you can prove every element. But, you know, I can tell you there there are times when prosecutors do take into consideration, you know, certainly a person's remorse, a person's, you know, changing of their of what they're doing with their life and what.
3: A bit, Mary, aren't there a lot of uh, isn't there a lot of precedent for like, you know, in public integrity cases where they're they've indicted, say, a, uh, a public office holder, a senator or a member of Congress if they as you say, express remorse and resign if they leave their position, that that is often viewed as a, a justification for,
2: for not uh, hey, pursuing Spiro charges. Spiro
0: Agnew, case in right. point, right? right. <laughs> he, he resigned and, you know, pled no law contender.
2: Yeah, yeah. And so I think it's completely ge- legitimate to be looking at what is the threat that this person pro- poses go- going forward. And, and I think this is another place to, you know, note the testimony last night of Mr. Pottinger you know, who was the deputy national security advisor, is a former Marine officer. And I really agree with a lot of what he said is that this is this is also, it's a national security threat when you see something like what happened on January 6th, it's not only just fodder for our adversaries, you know, Putin and Kim Jong-un and others who want to show that, you know, America can't be trusted, it can't be a, a world leader, their own house is, is burning and their democracy is failing. And you know they're you know they don't deserve that position. They're not stable. That fragility, that instability, you know, hurts us uh, with our adversaries, but it hurts us with our allies too. And we certainly saw that over President Trump's tenure. You know, many of our allies just I think thinking, gosh, can we just like get through this time and maybe get back to some normalcy after this? Because the U.S. just couldn't really be trusted in any of its positions. I mean it pulled out of the JPCOA, you know, this is the, the Iran nuclear agreement. It pulled out of, you know, getting outside of national security, It pulled out of Paris climate accords, you know, so many things, you know, we had the, our leader, you know, re, you know, publicly praising the Russian President Putin. So like the harm to national security also, I think from Trump himself, really can't be underestimated and particularly his impact on our democracy.
0: So, I got one uh, last question for you. You were with the Justice Department for a long time. You were the head of the National Security Division in 2016 and 17. My sense is, when Justice Department officials at a senior level are weighing a difficult decision about bringing a criminal case, they look to precedent have we prosecuted this sort of conduct, similarly situated against other people in the past? And if you find that you have, it makes it a lot easier to bring the charges that you're trying to decide whether to bring or not. In this case, there isn't any precedent, right? There's no precedent you could look to, is there?
2: To me, that's why you know they shouldn't think that they're bound by by you know finding a precedent here. This is an unprecedented event. You know, it's been we have to go back to 1812 to see an assault on the Capitol. Those were very very different times, and you know this, the damage done is just enormous, and we've seen it going well beyond January 6. We're seeing it every day, at every level and by every level i mean at that county level at that state level at that federal level we see it contributing to political polarization political violence anti-democracy efforts a uh, real corruption of our democratic processes and so not to mention that we had a you know a physical violent assault many 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 people over 130 people wounded five people left dead. Others, you know, with serious emotional damage efforts to actually, you know, get their hands on the vice president, Mike Pence, and who knows what they would have done if if they got their hands on him. We heard last night, secret service agents conveying messages to please tell their families goodbye if they didn't make it. I mean, this is unprecedented. So the department shouldn't feel bound by, is there another case like this? Because there's not another case like this.
0: Well said. Well, Mary, I want to uh, thank you. This has been an excellent discussion of a subject that, you know, a lot of people are debating, arguing and trying to uh, assess at this moment. And I think you've given us as good a guide as we could get to um, how the Justice Department is processing all this. So I want to thank you again for joining us on Skullduggery.
2: Thanks, all.
3: Thanks, Mary. It was great.